Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Amy Lawler. I'm an assistant state public defender, and I represent Stephen Leno in this appeal. This is a case about a state agency that is not following the law. In violation of state statute. Counsel, I want to get the, see if I can get the grasp on the facts here, exactly what's at issue here. We're really talking about, um, as, I, as I read the timing of this thing, about a year, right, from the time from the time sex offender treatment is completed in July 19, 2015, the filing of the habeas petition on June 23, 2016, and then on July 6, he's released to three-quarters housing. So that's the year that's at issue here. Am I right about that? Yes, Your Honor. And so the subsequent um, revocation of his conditional release, that's, that's not at issue, and the earlier revocation for... Uh, failure to complete sex offender treatment, that's not an issue either. Correct. Okay, very good. Thank you. But this is fundamentally about a year of Mr. Lano's life that he spent in prison rather than in the community in violation of state statute, in violation of administrative rules, in violation of the Department of Corrections' own policies. Mr. Lano is one of hundreds, at this point, over a thousand individuals who have served their time, they've reached their release state, but they are not released into the community solely because they have located housing in a Community Corrections Act county. And that county has a preference that they not be released to that county. Now those facts that you've just recited to us, um, are those in this record or are they in the Ford record? Both. Uh, the administrative hearing notes from Mr. Leno's administrative hearings are all clear that he's always had places to live. There was never any argument. And I understand relative to his position, those facts are in the record, but what I'm talking about, the fact that there, that you, there are, as you allege, uh, um, uh, a thousand individuals affected, et cetera, is that information in this record or in the Ford record? The volume of cases is in the Ford record. Uh, and so that and specifically relates to the mootness question that this court ordered us to address uh, under the Leno, or, in the Lano briefing under the Ford case. So these individuals, and they are Counsel, quite voluminous. I'm sorry, but yes. um, do you have authority that enables us to look in another, uh, in another case, in the record of another case? I mean, I, is there a difference in looking at the court of a, what the Court of Appeals has stated in the Ford case versus uh, looking into the actual record? Well, there's two things. One, if you can't, then we would ask this court to lift the stay in Ford and order briefing on Ford directly, uh, because those facts certainly cannot be divorced from the issues that Mr. Leno and Mr. Young and every other individual are facing. But second, yes, I think that you can. There wouldn't be any way to review the Court of Appeals decision in Ford without looking at the record that the court reviewed in that case. And that record, of course, included the only evidentiary hearing that we've managed to get in four years of litigation on this issue. And it's the only evidentiary hearing in which uh, witnesses from the Department of Corrections have testified as to how these hearings came to be, how many hearings are held, and why they're held. And the key point here is that the DOC hasn't gone to the legislature to ask permission to do what it is doing. There haven't been legislative hearings. There haven't been rulemaking hearings. There haven't been the type of hearings where you would be able to review a public record where the DOC would make a case as to why these review hearings are necessary, why they must be held, why there is any sort of deference to Community Corrections Act county preferences that an individual not be supervised. It hasn't gone through the process that the law requires it to go through to create these review hearing processes and incarcerate people past their release. Ms. Lawler, if I could stop you, I want to just back up a little bit. If 
I wonder if we did not lift the stay in Ford to get at um, you know, the information that came out through that evidentiary hearing. It, and maybe this is a rhetorical question, it, it, it strikes me that it's very difficult for you to win on the merits simply because, if we got there, simply because there does seem to be evidence. One, it, it's not clear that such a policy exists, this policy that you're talking about, the, that it even exists. Um, number two, it, it, it did seem to me that there was evidence in this record that there were other reasons that your client was not allowed to, uh, to be placed in Hennepin County. Uh, the landlord who, who had the licensing problem in, in Hennepin County, uh, the Maple Plain Motel, uh, which at least under the department's guidelines is not a suitable place because it's a motel, because it's intended to be temporary. So I don't know if you could address that. I guess I'm asking several questions, which is can you, can you win on the merits given the, the paucity of evidence in this case uh, and also the fact that it does seem to be some other reasons why your client might not have been suitably placed? Yes, we can win. <laughs> Tell me how you do that. What's your best argument on how you do that? I think the administrative hearing notes are quite clear that Mr. Leno wasn't being detained because the housing was unsuitable or it was in any way dangerous or that his release would pose a public safety risk. The administrative hearing notes are clear. At every single hearing, he had a place to go. And at every single hearing, the administrative hearing officer made it clear they wanted to let him out. They just needed to get Hennepin County's permission or Ramsey County's permission or St. Louis County's permission. At the August, 15, uh, August 2015 review hearing, uh, the parties all talked about how he had a placement, he had historical ties. They were going to refer it to dispute resolution, indicating that they thought the placement was suitable, that he should get out. They just had to go through dispute resolution to get Hennepin County to agree. Again, at the November 2015 hearing, the caseworker said that there were plans that had been sent out that the caseworker believed were suitable to Hennepin, Ramsey, and St. Louis County all had been rejected. Her supervisor had chosen not to pursue dispute resolution. She reiterated he had a, the ability to rent a place. Uh, not once did anyone say that any of these placements were unsuitable. The hearing officer didn't find that they were unsuitable. They were not approved. And that's again the, the theme that we keep going back to. They were not approved, but they were suitable and we cannot conflate the two. In the November of 2015 administrative appeal to HRU, Mr. Leno raised uh, a few examples of places that he could go and specifically addressed the landlord licensing issue. There was arguably, although certainly we are not conceding that point, uh, a licensing issue with one landlord, Max Elkin, but there was another that he had a, a placement with, with Manny Plotzker. There was no licensing issue there, but still he was not released to that suitable address. There was, uh, the response from the DOC was not that he had no suitable place to go, but that this would be an argument better addressed to the supervisor in Hennepin County. Again, the DOC's effort to displace responsibility and displace the obligation it has under the statute and the administrative rules to make those decisions and supervise. Finally, with the Maple Plain Motel in February of 2016, there was no finding that a long-term motel would be unsuitable under its own policy. Instead, the case manager said, unfortunately, it's in Hennepin County. There's negotiations to get him there for courtesy supervision. Council, thank, thank you for that. that. That is helpful to me, and, and maybe we got a, got a little ahead of myself, but backing up to the mootness, though, argument. So that, that's helpful on that point. But I guess the fundamental question here is, why isn't this moot? Why would we ever get there? 
given that your client is is out and has been out. Um, and um, now I understand, you know, you say that to some extent that maybe is manufactured uh, in the sense of what you believe the department's been doing in terms of just releasing these folks as soon as it looks like it might come to a head. But the bottom line is he's been released. And so if why isn't it moot? Four reasons. First, this is an appeal from a quasi-judicial administrative decision. So unlike other habeas petitions, there is still that right to the appellate review of the quasi-judicial administrative decision under Hames. Second, Mr. Leno is on conditional release for the rest of his life. So for the rest of his life, the terms and conditions of his release are going to be relevant to him. It won't be a moot point to him whether or not he is existing in the community solely uh, under the blessing and the courtesy supervision of Hennepin County. It's a difference between being an invitee versus a tenant who holds a lease or an at-will employee versus one who's employed under a contract. There's a difference under the terms of supervision. If at any moment Hennepin County could pull its courtesy supervision, as certainly as it has in other cases, but even without looking to those other records, simply not knowing the terms and conditions of the courtesy supervision or any potential trade. Third, voluntary cessation cannot render an appeal moot. Now, the DOC continues to insist that its conduct is lawful. As we've extensively briefed, when a state agency temporarily ceases a challenged conduct while nonetheless asserting that the conduct was lawful and it has the right to carry it out, the, the appeal is not moot. And unless the agency have can, they ceased it though? I mean, you say in your brief that review hearings are going on today, they're going to go on tomorrow, and they're going to go on next week. So, how do or am I thinking about that oddly? How, how, how does that fit? Well, they're ceasing it with respect to Mr. Leno. They've ceased to hold him in custody right now, which I think is their argument for why it's not moot. But I agree with you. They certainly have not ceased the offending conduct as a whole for other individuals. Uh, we have hearings this week. I'll be at Rush City. I've got three review hearings on Friday. These are continuing at an unrelenting pace, and they're going to continue to do so until a court weighs in on this, on the merits of the issue. And finally, this week, touches on the last issue, it's capable of repetition yet evades review, and it's an issue of statewide significance. Counsel, this, is this a petition for writ of habeas corpus under MnSTAT 589? So yes, the, are we talking about this, the chapter 589, the Minnesota yes. statute? Yes. Um, that statute contemplates that, that you have to make a sufficient showing for the court to issue a writ, and then the sheriff produces the body produces yes. the person and has to defend the imprisonment or other restraint. How would that work in this case? Let's say there isn't, and the order is issued, who's gonna produce Mr. Leno to, to show that he's, who is in charge of his imprisonment or restraint? Well, he remains under the supervision of the Department of Corrections and therefore under Jones v. Cunningham and the other line of cases, he is still in the constructive custody of the Department of Corrections. The DOC can order him to show up anywhere at any time. It's a condition of his release that he be supervised uh, until the day he dies. So in terms of whether or not he would show up for a hearing, the DOC could simply tell him to do so, and he would. Uh, I don't think that's the real logistical hurdle here, though, of him showing up for any hearing. There's never been an issue with him missing appointments. I think, though, more fundamentally, it goes to the question of whether it makes sense to do an appeal from a quasi-judicial administrative hearing by writ of habeas corpus versus writ of certiorari or some other means. And that question yeah, is, but, of course, but before But his essential court. complaint in the habeas proceeding mm -hmm. is, I wanted to be in Hennepin County and they wouldn't let me be in Hennepin County. 
So now he's in Hennepin County. Does the DOC now have to produce him um, to show that he's restrained by being in Hennepin County? The DOC is... How, how does this work? And maybe I'm getting to mootness. I don't think it does get just to mootness, so I think it also goes to the DOC's obligations to set the terms and conditions of release. And part of that requirement is that it is the body that makes those decisions. It can't simply say whatever Hennepin County wants on any given day, no matter how arbitrary, no matter how contrary to public safety, that is what we will follow. And that's what we've certainly seen here is that there's an absolute deference to a CCA county's preference at any given time as to whether or not someone is supervised. And we don't know yet whether or not Mr. Leno actually has the ability to remain in Hennepin County for the rest of his life. We don't know if it's contingent on a period of time. We don't know if it's contingent on a trade. And we don't know if it's contingent solely on him living with his elderly parents. Well, we can't assume that he wants to stay in Hennepin County the rest of his life, can we? Well, there are still a f there's a few different issues. One is that the DOC still has not approved any of the addresses that he submitted during the release planning process for the private residences with various landlords in Hennepin County. We can't necessarily assume that he wants to stay anywhere, but we can assume that he wants to know the terms and conditions of his release and to know that on any given day, whether or not he has the right to, to wake up and go to work and live as a productive member of society without being worried that today is the day Hennepin County is going to choose to pull permission, whether that's because this case has ended or because a trade has been undone or for any other arbitrary reason. And this goes to the... But, we, but there's no evidence of any arbitrary reason occurring now or in the future. I mean, he, he is subject to conditional release for the rest of his life. I mean, the, some of the circumstances that you describe, I think we all agree he's potentially um, responsible for, regardless of this proceeding. The other circumstances, the, the ones that cause us to land here, are hypothetical at this point. It's, doesn't that get us to mootness again? They're not hypothetical at this point. The DOC's position is absolutely clear that an individual can only remain in a CCA county so long as that CCA county agrees to courtesy supervision. That's not a hypothetical condition of Mr. Leno's and, release. And you know that from the Ford record? No, it's also from all of Mr. Leno's administrative hearings as well. At each of these administrative hearings, the hearing officer said that he can only get out if he can procure the courtesy supervision from that county from Hennepin County in particular. So until Mr. Leno could get that permission, and we don't know whether that was a result of a trade or whether that was just Hennepin County changing its mind, uh, eventually he got that permission and he was able to get out. But that's still a term of his, of his release right now is that the DOC says we'll only supervise you if Hennepin County says it's okay if Hennepin County gives us this courtesy supervision. And that is an absolute violation of the statutes and the administrative rules governing and the counsel, DOC's obligation. how do you know that that's a, a term of his release? How do you know that? Because the hearing officer said that he could only get out of prison at each of the review hearings if he could get the courtesy supervision from the CCA County. And even the... Um, so the, you're extrapolating from that that they also have the right to withdraw that, that uh, permission. Yes, that, and it's not even an extrapolation. The, it, at all of these hearings and also in the administrative appeal to the executive director of the hearings and release unit, um, in that response, she says that's a, an issue best brought up with the Hennepin County supervision team. Over and over, they've disclaimed responsibility and put the onus back on uh, the CCA County to make that decision. And 
under 244.05, as well as all of the administrative rules governing this, the DOC is the body responsible for setting the terms and conditions. Language, that language doesn't appear in the district court order, though, does it? Or am I missing that? About the about the CCA counties and supervisory or, um, refusal to allow the, the courtesy supervision issue. No, the, the, that's the problem. The, the CCA county issue is is absolutely critical and key to all of these administrative hearings, but has been was widely ignored both by the district court and by the court of appeals in this case. Counsel, this seems to me no different than <clears throat> if a uh, offender vi or offender commits a crime in Hennepin County. Um, found guilty is put under probation supervision whether it's intensive supervised release or other in order for them to move out of the county there has to be permission granted and it is the same concept where it's a request is made of the, another county and then the county can either say yes we'll take on the responsibility for various reasons or no we will not for various reasons how is that any different from this scenario I think the difference here is the, both the, the DOC's obligations and the county's obligations under the Community Corrections Act, under 401. Under the CCA statute, counties have the obligation to supervise in accordance with the DOC's regulations and policies. They're required to follow the same rules and regulations that the DOC follows. And that's, it's essentially a contractual agreement. The CCA county, counties sign up and say, we're going to supervise for the DOC. The DOC says, great, we will certify your compliance, we'll certify every year that you should receive funding because you're in compliance. And yet, the CCA counties in this case and in the others have simply not followed the rules. Even though the DOC policy says the presumptive release jurisdiction is a place where you have a place to live. And even though the, D the DOC hearing officers have said, you're right, these are suitable, these should work for you, instead of saying, CCA counties, you have an obligation to supervise, and if you won't do it, we'll come up with some other plan to get you out in accordance with your own liberty interest and according with it to the statutory obligation that you be released, the DOC simply incarcerates people. They did give him options that he did not take advantage of because he didn't want to live in, I think, one of the hotels or in, I don't know if it was Maple Plain or one of the cities, because he, wa he wanted to live in Hennepin County, right? Well, he, Maple Plain is in Hennepin County. He always oh, wanted yeah, to go there. The outskirts. Yeah. But I mean, he wanted, to, he wanted to live in Hennepin County and there were options that were presented that, as I read the record, that he um, did not take advantage of. No, uh, I, I was with him at all of those review hearings. I think the record is also quite clear about that, that at every single review hearing, they went through a slew of options about what every single placement was. He was desperate to get out of prison, as anyone would be when they've reached their release date and are not being let out. He worked incredibly hard to identify all of the available placement options in, at every single one of these hearings, finding placements in Hennepin and St. Louis and Ramsey, over and over and over finding placements that the DOC would not release them to, even though they were suitable, because Hennepin County said it didn't want to. Council, can you help me? What documentation is there, if any, of his current um, release status. So he's now staying with his parents, right? Yes. In Hennepin County. Yes. Does the DLC issue um, an order or something? I'm, I'm trying to figure out, is there any documentation surrounding these, these placements once these individuals are placed? There's nothing relating to courtesy supervision. Uh, and that was why the Ford hearing was unique in that we finally got 
uh, DOC employees on the record to admit that there were secret agreements between the county and the DOC. Otherwise, there's no documentation as to those types of agreements. We don't know uh, how long he could stay there. We don't know. Uh, what we do know but, is that... But there must be some record, and maybe this is a, a, a better question for the state. There must be some record of that this, this, this has occurred and what the terms of that are, that he's now with his parents. The DOC must have some record of that, written record of that, right? Uh, they might. Uh, we certainly don't. You don't have anything? No. no. And you just, so you know he's there just because... How do you know he's well, there? Well, we, we know that he was released there. We have conditions of release that he received, the, the general conditions that anyone on supervised or conditional release gets that uh, lists all of the, the things that they can and can't do, no contact with minors, no alcohol, no intoxic not intoxicants, that sort of thing, uh, the conditions that he has to follow. What we don't know are any agreements between Hennepin County and the DOC. And those have not been disclosed to us. Council, so was not the three-quarter housing an option for him? He was released to three-quarter housing in Wright County. That was ultimately how he got out of prison the first time. Council, you've expressed a concern that at any time Hennepin County could reverse course back out and then he'd, uh, he'd be back where he was. Is there anything that would prevent you on behalf of your client from seeking emergency relief if Hennepin County did that? Well, we certainly could, but in the meantime, he would be back in prison and we would be facing the same issue that we've had for the past four years in terms of trying to get a decision on the merits. We've been litigating Is there any reason why you couldn't get a temporary restraining order to prevent him from being returned? We have found that the courts do not move with the same speed or urgency that we would like, but also additionally, there is a question of resources here. We don't, we have, you know, every year hundreds and hundreds of these and we have to pick and choose which habeas petitions we're going to bring as extra volunteer work, essentially, on, on top of our regular caseloads. There's only so much that we can do, which is why we are so desperate both to get a decision on the merits and a decision as to how these cases should be brought, whether that's by writ of habeas corpus or writ of I certain understand some of the reason. I appreciate that. I guess I'm just asking those a legal matter. Is there anything that would prevent the issuance of a temporary restraining order if Hennepin County reversed course? I think that we would run into the problem of the DOCs holding these quasi-judicial hearings and a question of whether or not we would need be required to exhaust administrative remedies and then appeal that decision or whether we could bypass that entirely. I think that is an open question as to the procedure. Um, but I think also more fundamentally, there's a need for a decision on the merits about whether the DOC can, in the abstract, delegate the question of whether someone could be released to suitable housing in a CCA county to that CCA county for any reason at all with absolute deference. And that's what we have here. This is not a situation where a CCA county says, we will not supervise because that placement is unsuitable or because there's a risk to the public, or we will not supervise in accordance with any sort of administrative rule that's been promulgated. The CCA county simply says, we don't want to do it. The DOC has never gone through a rulemaking process to create review hearings. The law doesn't allow these review hearings. The law does not allow the DOC to simply extend incarceration because a county doesn't want someone or for any other reason. The law doesn't allow this process and the DOC has not gone through the rulemaking process. So they, they do make an argument on the rulemaking process as an exception to the rulemaking process for this particular thing, for sentencing and a release, excuse me. Can you address that argument? Sure, I think the idea was that essentially if anyone is on supervised or conditional release, then during that term of supervision, the DOC can do whatever it wants. 
That's not what the law says. 244.05 is very clear and under subdivision two that the DOC has to adopt by rule, standard, and procedures for the revocation of supervised and conditional release. It has to specify the period of revocation. And it has gone through rulemaking to adopt the process for revocation hearings. It has not gone through rulemaking to create this review hearing process. It invented this process about 14 years ago. And then it backed off after the 2008 decision from the Court of Appeals in Marlowe. And then all of a sudden they skyrocketed about four years ago. And the general public isn't aware of this, and the legislature most likely is not aware of this, because there hasn't been a rulemaking process, there hasn't been a request to the legislature to allow this to happen. So, I, and I don't necessarily disagree with the argument you're making, but they do make an argument that revocation is different than what this is, and so they can do this expedited rulemaking, essentially, which I still think requires rulemaking, frankly, but... <laughs> Can you just talk about that? Well, I would, I would agree with you that it does, but I think that both the, the statute and then if you look at the, the case law, Morrissey and his progeny, individuals have a liberty interest in being released during and living in the community during their term of supervision, uh, and particularly in a determinate sentencing state like Minnesota. And that's key. We are in a determinate sentencing state. There is a presumption that individuals will live in the community in their release, and that that serves a purpose of reintegration, of being a productive member of society. The DOC can't simply decide that's not important and bypass it when the le legislature requires them to either let people out or make a rulemaking process not to. Thank you, Council. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Bellmunger. Please, according counsel, my name is Rachel Bell Munger. I'm an assistant attorney general, and I represent the respondent, Commissioner of Corrections, Tom Roy. This court should decline the opportunity to issue an advisory opinion and rule consistently with this court's longstanding precedent that the court decides only actual controversies. Stephen Lano's habeas petition is moot. If this court reaches the merits and decides that an issue or the issue survives mootness, this court should affirm the denial of the petition because he fundamentally did not meet his burden of showing the unlawfulness of his imprisonment when it happened. I'd like to begin with mootness. This court's well aware that the writ of habeas corpus is available to obtain relief from its lawful imprisonment or restraint. The statute, and I think this court's precedent, recognize that this is about present enforced imprisonment or restraint, not to secure immunity from future possible imprisonment or restraint. Leno's habeas petition sought his immediate release from prison. He focused on that time period, as Your Honor asked, about where he believed he completed, where he completed treatment and before he was re-released. His focus and the arguments was about Hennepin County, with also the argument about the authority to hold review hearings thrown in. He was released more than once during the pendency of this case, but for this court's purpose, the relevant release is the one to Hennepin County in May 2017. His circumstances have also materially changed since the filing of his petition. Some of the housing-related arguments focus on difficulties or level three predatory offenders. Are there, um, are there any limitations on the commissioner's power to keep someone in confinement other than the expiration of the conditional release date? 
Well, Your Honor, it depends. That seems to be the argument you're making. Um, Your Honor, of course, it depends what release we're talking about or what release date we're talking about, because there are certain statutes that supervise release date that kind of two-thirds, one-third, um, the expiration of the supervised release term I'm to the conditional. I'm talking about the release, obviously the one that's at issue in this case. Yes, the conditional release. So if he returns to prison as a release violator with his release being revoked, yet, Your Honor is correct, the only limit placed by law is that it cannot exceed expiration of the sentence which in this case, the district court imposed a lifetime conditional release sentence. But that's so the, 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 the commissioner really has no obligations. So, so, even if, he, so if, they, if he's brought in because he needs to complete sex offender treatment, as an example, and he completes the sex offender treatment, so he completes the reason he was brought back in, the commissioner still has 100% discretion to keep him in, in prison for the rest of his life. That's basically your position. Um, your Honor, I think it would depend on the circumstances, but in this particular case, with this well, kind of fact Well, what circumstances pattern, would that not be that wouldn't apply in this particular case? I mean, it's, it does seem like you're kind of taking that maximalist position, that that's the rule, that once he's back in, he's in forever, if, he, if, it, it, if, the, if the commissioner decides that's the case, and he has really no legal recourse to, to figure out a way to get out. Um, your Honor, the statutes do contemplate that its expiration is a limit that's placed on it. They don't... There's no further limit. But this particular case, I think the context is important that he was a level three predatory offender and required to be placed on ISR. So there's an initial consideration of at his revocation hearing, and the revocation hearing's not appealed or not at issue, but where he's found unamenable to supervision and given a treatment directive to return to prison to complete sex offender treatment. There's that issue of him doing that, but it also has to be safe to re-release someone. The commissioner has to be able to comply with his other statutory responsibilities and obligations, which in this case would be placing him on ISR. So do they have, but, is there, but there's no obligation to help him find that place? Your Honor, not under statute. The Court of Appeals has held that the commissioner does have the obligation to assist, and the DOC, of so course... So where does that authority come from, then, if, they're, if it's totally in the, dis, the commissioner's discretion? Your Honor, there's been kind of years of litigation of these issues at the Court of Appeals, and I think one decision in particular, which was um, State Actual Marlowe versus Fabian, looked to DOC policy and indicated that the DOC did have an obligation to assist. Um, if this court is re-reviewing that, which it doesn't need to since this case is moot and that's kind of, but if the court is reviewing those issues, that doesn't seem to have authority in either any constitutional principle or in any state law. It is based on but DOC counsel, policy. Just um, out of, if we are looking at this big picture and, um, I mean, you have to acknowledge that it is, uh, we're taking a, a difficult group of individuals who are going to have a, a difficult time finding housing because of their status and um, who have been incarcerated and probably don't have any sort of um, family or anyone around, a support system. And so it seems that we're setting, and, and I'm thinking of this even in a broader context, that we're setting that individual up for failure without without having any assistance to find housing. I mean, this, that's, if we say, go find your housing, that's, that's not likely to occur. Um, yes, sir, and of course, it, it's a difficult situation with a difficult population, and particularly if they've been released and go back to prison and maybe have lost a housing resource, it's a difficult situation. And the DOC assists them. I think, to be clear, 
it may not be required, but the DOC assists them, and I think this, this record has evidence of proof of that, that but they do. Council, let's talk a little bit about the re these uh, review hearings that were held in this particular case. Opposing counsel says, uh, and um, goes on at some length, about what happened in those individual review hearings, um, suggesting that uh, suitable housing was presented and that the, that the defendant, uh, the prisoner, was told um, that, um, you know, courtesy supervision was not going to be granted and so forth. Um, do you agree that the, the, those review hearings are before us? Uh, is the recitation of what occurred at those review hearings correct, and does it matter? Um, Your Honor, I think with whether they're correct, what's in the record is a recap of what is said at the review hearing. So that's, I guess, what I have to review, Your Honor. That's what this court, of course, has to review. I think those recaps have less detail than is stated in the brief. Um, but whether those review hearings are before your honors, I think I, I disagree that this case presents an appeal of a quasi-judicial hearing officer decision. And I think it's important to look back to the habeas petition and the memo supporting the habeas petition. There's a challenge, of course, to review hearings and whether there is the authority to hold them. But then the other challenge, a constitutional kind of workability type challenges are about his ongoing incarceration at the time and whether he should be immediately released because he disagreed and felt he had a place to go. It wasn't real, really an appeal saying, I am appealing this March 2016 hearing officer decision. It was an error or an excess of the state's authority because of X, Y, Z. It seemed to be a little more of kind of a holistic, my ongoing incarceration, which is really a quintessential habeas case. So, Your Honor, they are part and parcel of the facts, and there was a challenge below to the authority to hold review hearings, but whether or not that particular hearing officer erred, I don't think is really before this court. Um, it also doesn't matter because the habeas petition is moot. And if there are questions about, on the merits, about what happened between A and B, or if there's questions on gaps in the record, that comes back to that he did not meet the burden of adequately supporting his petition and proving the unlawfulness of his restraint. Counsel, help me with the record. It's, it's a, I think, a follow-up to Justice Anderson's question. I, I seem to recall at some point, and I think and maybe Ms. Lawler can answer this on rebuttal, uh, she brought an administrative um, challenge to what I thought, at least from the record, was the policy as a whole. Not, am I am I wrong about that? At some point, and I think it was in terms of just uh, uh, exhausting remedies, uh, she felt that she was required, and I think the rules do provide for that. So, where does that proceeding with with respect to Mr. Leno fall into this? Um, Your Honor, if we're thinking about the same thing, there was an appeal to an executive officer within the DOC of the November 2005 review hearings. And so that was appealed, but that seems to be... Was she challenging there? Was it the, the, the review hearings themselves, the legality of the review hearings themselves? That's what I recall. Yes, Your Honor. It seemed that there is a challenge in there to the legality of the review hearings, but also the fact that he was still in prison. So I suppose that the hearing officer extended that projected release date, yes, but... I think it was a little more that he should be, it seemed to seek his immediate release from prison, is at least how I read that. Counsel, if we agree with you that this is moot, tell me at least two exceptions, it seems to me, might apply. And the first would be that this is an issue of statewide significance. And I, 
I don't know how, well, I'll let you tell me if you think you can challenge that, but it seems it is. And, and I think you just alluded to in your comments to Justice Anderson that years, there have been years of litigation on these issues. So that seems to me, says to me that this is an issue of statewide importance. Um, and then that brings you then to um, that these issues have to be functionally justiciable. So why aren't they in your mind? Well, Your Honor, I think there's kind of two challenges for the court to consider are two different issues here. The lawfulness of the review hearings. There have been cases, there have been decisions on this issue, um, but it doesn't seem to have the broad impact where this court does apply this exception. And this court does apply this exception pretty rarely to revive a non-justiciable challenge. Um, but that is more of a legal issue, that's correct. The other challenge, though, on housing and about whether the level three predatory offender in Lano's circumstances, his particular challenge based on his housing and the incarceration to keep him in prison while he looked for housing, doesn't appear to have statewide impact. I think there's a lot of statements about the scope of these issues, and of course it can be challenging for level three predatory offenders to find housing. The DOC would disagree with kind of a statement about the scope of that in this housing issue. Um, but there's, I don't think there's a record in this case to indicate that that's an issue of statewide impact. Is there a record to support that in Ford? Your Honor, about... Given the testimony from DOC officials? I mean, I, I think, again, with the statewide housing, the DOC would disagree that in Ford it supports that, but there's also the review hearings challenge. There's kind of two separate challenges going on. You don't disagree, though, that DOC conducts these these review hearings with some regularity. I mean, that's why you have a policy form, right? I mean, you wouldn't yes, need Honor, a policy if you weren't doing it. Yes, Your Honor, they're, they're in the policy, and the policy kind of contemplates different reasons that the, they can be held. For example, in Mr. Lano's case, he had review hearings to extend his time in treatment. Notably, there doesn't seem to be an argument that that violated the DOC's authority or that the DOC didn't have the authority to do that, which if they didn't have the review hearings, if they didn't have the ability to do that, it seems like that should be challenged as well. Counsel, on this mootness point, um, isn't, what about Brooks? I mean, in your brief, you sort of suggest that, well, Brooks is kind of an outlier and it's been, it's been undermined by more recent authority on, on mootness, but this, the issues raised here feel a lot to me like the bail issue that was presented in Brooks. Mm -hmm. In Brooks, Your Honor, I think you try to distinguish it based on the analysis for whether an issue is capable of repetition yet evading review. And it does seem like in Brooks that the court decided it met that exception, but as well as statewide significance. Um, so I, that, that was kind of the basis for distinguishing it. But what I think is the standard for statewide significance in your mind? How many people does it have to be? I'm not sure if there's a number, Your Honor. Um, this is cases, this court's decisions to decide some things of statewide impact. Um, sometimes it's cases involving life or death, such as Shumi. Um, sometimes it's cases where there's indications that it could be a very large number or it's just such, such an important issue that could affect other criminal cases, for example. We take into account the administrative difficulties that the appellate public defender is having? No, Your Honor, I, I appreciate that point, but that doesn't change what the law is for reviving a non-justiciable challenge. Um, that wouldn't change it. Counsel, I want to go back to, to Brooks for a minute. Um, I didn't, I guess I didn't hear at least what I thought was a satisfactory answer to the Chief's question from me, because when I look at Brooks, 
um, you know, you, you have a, a very comparable situation here that he, he posts the cash bail, and so it's moot as to him. But what we go on to say is it doesn't matter that it's moot just as to him. We're looking at the policy of cash bail as a whole. And that seems to me on, to be on all fours here. It, it doesn't matter that um, Mr. Lino has been released. We're looking at this policy that the DOC has as a whole for these review hearings and the, the, um, uh, the requirement, the apparent requirement, that people, in, offenders, have to get the consent of the, of the county where they want to go in order for this, in order to be released. And it seems to me to be a, a broader policy. And Brooks seems to me to be dead on point. Why isn't it? I just um, didn't hear, maybe you could ref sure, go back off that answer. I mean, I think there is the issue of statewide impact where kind of considering the broader policy as a whole is appropriate. But for whether something is capable of repetition yet evading review, um, we have argued that that is incorrect to look at kind of the broader impact and whether other people would be affected for purposes of that exception. And I think it should be an individualized inquiry. For a few but, but counsel, and, and Ms. Lawler says this in her reply brief, it seems to me Khan is kind of on a similar footing. We're looking at that broader sort of election uh, process um, and a couple of other cases as well where we weren't just focused on um, you know, mootness as to that individual. We were we held that no, there there's a broader policy issue at stake here. Why um, isn't that? Yes, Your Honor. And Khan did consider it was an election case, and it did consider whether this would repeat in other cities. That is correct. Um, but I do think the court also noted that this could repeat in the city of Minneapolis. Granted, it was going to be in the future, I think, in 2022. So the court did consider whether it would repeat for Minneapolis. And why wouldn't we consider that here, where this person has already been um, revoked once before? Um, I don't know why. I know generally the law says we presume people are being law-abiding. But in this case, he's run into difficulties before. Why wouldn't we assume he might, with a lifetime conditional release. I mean, mm -hmm. his entire life, he's going to be under these conditions. Um, yes, Your Honor, he is on conditional release, but I think that doesn't change the fact of whether he is re reasonably expects to be in the same position again in the future. Your Honor, recognize there is a law that assumes they're gonna be law-abiding. Um, and for him to kind of be in the situation he was before where he's revoked and then feels he's been kept in prison for too long to not find housing, this court would have to make so many assumptions based on kind of hypotheticals, based on incomplete information. A lot of we don't know if this may happen to him or this may happen to him or not. But I think also looking back to the petition, the issue shouldn't be just whether he's on conditional release. He challenged his incarceration at the time on this basis and sought only his immediate release. This case couldn't really, none, it couldn't ever be moot if the question is just whether he's subject to conditions. And it should be. There should be finality. We're far past the action that he challenged. It's been moot for quite some time. And whether it should be an individualized inquiry, um, Your Honor, too, it should be for a few reasons. Um, first being that a plaintiff, I think this court, even though in Khan it did kind of consider other cities and other issues, I note that it was an election-related case with a certified question from a federal district court, so that may put it in somewhat of a different category. But Well, well that's why I come back to Brooks, because but maybe your, your point is that Brooks is an outlier, because I think Brooks is, is on all fours here. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. Your Honor, I would disagree as to that particular exception because the court did kind of articulate the standard that way in both Kahn and Dean, that and in the absence of a class action, we will consider it this way. And it should be that way because a plaintiff generally, or a habeas petitioner in this case, doesn't have standing to seek relief on behalf of others. The inquiry in a habeas case is really unique. The petition has to state on whose behalf the petition is being brought, um, and then it's whether that person's entitled to relief from unlawful imprisonment or restraint. So it should be an individualized inquiry in this case. Counsel, let's focus on the likely to evade judicial review part of the exception to mootness. Um, What's your best argument on that? And let's say um, Hennepin County all of a sudden decided it didn't want to supervise uh, this client anymore. Um, What remedies, fast remedies, um, would uh, Mr. Leno have? Um, I guess, Your Honor, I'll answer the second question first before the hating review. Um, I think that is entirely hypothetical, but let's say if he were to go back to prison, and I think I need to take a step back to explain that if a person is found to be in violation of their condition of release, whatever that may be, Um, There are three options. Going back to prison isn't automatic. They could be counseled on those conditions without any change to them. The conditions could be restructured or modified if they have violated something and something needs to be adapted. Or the third option is a revocation hearing. Yeah, but one condition here is that Hennepin County supervised this guy, right? um, I'm not sure if that's quite a condition of his release, but it is the fact that he was released to Hennepin and is Hennepin's responsibility being supervised by Hennepin. You're not disagreeing. Hennepin County just said we're not going to supervise him anymore then that would be a serious problem for him, wouldn't it? Your Honor, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, if he lost his housing and wasn't able to be supervised, I'm not sure, but I think if a remedy, if he went back to prison and thought that he was being unlawfully restrained... Counsel, you're not be, really saying if a level three or even a level two offender suddenly has no supervision, that that's not a serious problem for the department? Oh, I mean, he would, he would need to be supervised. He is on standard supervised release now. He's no longer on ISR, but he still would be supervised and subject to his conditions of release. But if he went back to prison, he would have the ability, depending on his claims, of course, and if he can prevail, but to bring a habeas case. I don't think the habeas statute necessarily discusses expedited review, but of course there seem to be steps that you could ask a district court to expedite a process. So I think... If he thinks he's unlawfully in prison, that would be the remedy. Well, I came up with this idea that he could always seek a TRO. Is, is a TRO available in a habeas proceeding? Your Honor, I'm not sure. It, I don't think it's really in the habeas statute, but sometimes the rules of civil procedure can be applied in a habeas, habeas case. I suppose a, he could try. Habeas is a funny thing, isn't it? You, it is you don't know unique, what's criminal and what's civil. Yes, and it's kind of a unique statutory chapter. Um, but I don't think anything would preclude him from trying to get a more expedited review. And on appeal, there's certainly the ability to have expedited appeals as well. Can, can you Counsel, just, can you... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Counsel, can you answer my question that I asked of Ms. Lawler? What documentation or records exist on Mr. Lino's current placement? What do you... What, and what's typical? I mean, mm-hmm. answer, answer that. Okay, um... Well, Your Honor, what we supplemented the record with is pretty limited. Um, It showed his conditions of release from dated May 2017, that date when he was released to ISR to Hennepin County. So that's supplemented in the record as well as a DOC um, kind of report reflecting that he's still level two. He's on standard supervision being supervised by Hennepin. 
Um, is there anything that shows that he is being supervised by Hennepin County? Is there documentation that, that says that? Um, yes, Your Honor. Well, it's conditions of release that were That's supplemented. That's part of the conditions of release. It lists kind of where he's going to live at the top and who will be supervising him. Then below that, there's the special conditions and then the standard conditions. Um, I'm not saying that's the world of documents that could be possible, but that's kind of the limited information that is supplemented in this record. Is that typical? Um, for what supplemented, Your Honor, or for? Is that a typical record, I guess, is for cases like this, I guess is what I'm asking, to the best of your knowledge. Yeah, well, in general, Your Honor, I think that is the kind of thing that's shown when they, when they move, um, but... It is a very limited supplementation. I mean, that's not the extent or the world of documents that would exist. Um, can, can I just two kind of factual clarifying questions? The first is you just said that he moved from ISR uh, in May of 2017. Um, sorry, Your Honor, he, so he was released to ISR in Hennepin County May 2017 and then transitioned to standard super release, I think, May or June But we have a document that he was actually brought down to level two in October of 2016. Um, so how, I, that's a fact question I've never quite understood. Um, yes, Your Honor, that, that did happen earlier. I'm not sure if that's in the record. Well, that it was, was to be rejected on an order that I saw two days ago, but... Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but it's a fact question that I just want you to clarify for me. Yeah, um, that reduction in his level of supervision did happen earlier. Um, but, and so his circumstances after the district court petition, he was released to the three-quarter housing. Then he moved to a private residence in Big Lake. Yep. Um, I think that was October 2016, but the record would indicate he was there for some time, then violated conditions. Um, there was a revocation hearing, I believe it was March 2017, and he was revoked for a certain amount of time, and then that's kind of where the so district So he went court... back to level three then? No, he did not go back to level three after that. So I don't understand why you keep saying he was released from ISR to Hennepin County in May of 2017. Oh, that's just that he was placed, he moved to a residence in Hennepin County and was supervised by Hennepin County. So you don't need to talk about the ISR at that point then, that's just kind of a, beside the point. We can get um, to another question. So the other question, though, I do have is this relationship between Hennepin County and the housing. So if Hennepin County refuses to supervise anymore, then does, then does he lose his housing? Your Honor, he would need to be able to be supervised since he is subject to conditions and placed on, you know, serving standard supervision. Um, I'm not sure if he loses his housing, but he would have to be supervised. It just doesn't seem that there's anything in the record to support. I'm just that asking idea that as a matter of practice here. If I don't know very much about this, so just bear with me. So, if someone is placed in a county and has housing in a county under a CCA, and then that county decides we don't want to supervise this person anymore, does he have to move out of that county? Your Honor, honestly, I, I'm I'm not sure. Um, if he would have to move out of that county um, or if he wouldn't be able to be subject to conditions of release. I don't think there's anything in this record to indicate that that's happened. I'm not sure in that situation. I do see I've run out of time, but if there's additional question or I'm not certain, Your Honor. All right. I think we're good. 
All right. Uh, thank you, Council. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Lawler, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. If you know, can you just answer the question that I just started with? If he, if Hennepin County revokes its supervision, does then he lose his housing, or is there someone else that can come in to supervise? What we have seen is that, yes, <clears throat> the DOC would then bring him in on a violation alleging that he had changed his residence without agent approval and failed to maintain approved housing, and he would be revoked for a period of time. And can you tell me why that is? Could, could, couldn't the DOC just take over supervision in that location? Yes, it could. And when you ask why it happens, I think that you're touching on a much broader political question rather than a legal one. Because until 14 years ago, that's what happened. Either the county took on supervision like it was supposed to, or the DOC assigned an agent, or the DOC made informal phone calls to that county and said, we're dropping the guy off at your office at 9 a.m., you better be there. That's what happened. We didn't have this problem of people suddenly not having approved residence because the county didn't want them. That's a recent invention. Well, so no, I guess what my question is, is it seems like the part of the argument here is on the, the housing itself, right? And that there's this courtesy supervision. But the only reason he could really be, well, he could be revoked because he doesn't have supervision, which is a separate question, but the DOC could just say, well, we're going to supervise. Yes. But is that connected with his housing? Can the DOC supervise someone in Hennepin County? I guess that's the question. It could, and that is actually what it's doing with Mr. Ford in the state case right now. It absolutely could. It's choosing not to. It's choosing not to follow that obligation under 24405. It's choosing to take the path of put, putting someone in prison rather than either telling the county to supervise or supervising them themselves. And I also want to point out that this is not an issue solely related to ISR offenders or sex offenders. This is happening to people on standard supervised release. It's happening to people who are not sex offenders. When we brought the Dalton challenge by writ of certiorari to the Court of Appeals, that was a whole list of people that were not sex offenders. They were not on intensive supervised release. They were, had been revoked for the first time under a statute that limits revocation to 90 days. And they were still being held out of deference to the CCA county preference. But that was dismissed because the court said we had to bring this by habeas corpus and this court denied review. So this is not a limited question for a small group of people that can't find housing. People at all levels, on every level of supervision for every type of offense, have found places to live, and the DOC is not letting them out of prison. Council, I, I tend to agree with you. This is an issue of statewide significance as far as the exception of the mootness requirement. I think it's probably capable of repetition, but I'd like to focus, as I did with opposing counsel, on the likely to evade judicial review, which is one of the grounds for the exceptions application in the Brooks case. In the Brooks case, it says, most pretrial bail issues are, by definition, short-lived. What is short-lived about this problem? Well, I think there's a few things that are short-lived. One is the duration of the extension of the revocation term. Uh, because for some of those people, it might be days or weeks. Those are inherently of short duration. The other problem, though, is that the DOC is the party that holds the key to the lock. And so what we've consistently seen in these cases is that when we finally put the resources into filing the habeas, which is a tremendous use of resources, the DOC will invariably find a way to let that one person out while evading the general, much broader question of whether or not yeah, it can hold I these I appreciate the resource problem that your office has and that you personally undoubtedly have. I'm just not sure that's a legal ground for finding an exception to the mootness requirement. And uh, help, help me out on that. I mean, may, maybe there's some kind of class remedy here 
um, that can be pursued without a, pursuing an individual habeas uh, action, but wh why should your resources affect our legal decision? Well, it's not just a resource question. It's that the DOC is in control of the length of the incarceration. So the party that we are, from whose quasi-judicial administrative decision we are appealing is the one that gets to decide how long that decision is going to be enforced. So if it's an inherently short-lived duration, it's because the DOC has made it an inherently short-lived duration, and that's what we've seen, is that they're not keeping people in custody after we file the habeas petition, but they're keeping everybody in custody until that moment. And this also goes, I think, back to the more fundamental question about whether review hearings are allowed in the first place. We've always challenged the ability of the DOC to hold any review hearings in any context without going through the rulemaking process. Now, someone on this court just uh, asked Ms. Bell the question about whether DOC policy allows for this. DOC policy didn't allow for review hearings until last year. That was the first time that the DOC actually adopted a policy even defining a review hearing, even acknowledging that they existed was in 2017, and it didn't go through the rulemaking process. And so the DOC has, I think, taken the steps to start to indicate that it, it is going to entrench this process, but it is not going to go through the proper channels to do so. And so when we get to the question of mootness, I think it's a, a very intertwined question of what do we do with a state agency that has dug in its heels and said, we're not going to go through the process, but we're going to keep doing this because no court has told us we can't. This also segues, I think, to um, a question that we haven't really discussed here today, which is the constitutional piece, which is whether or not individuals have a liberty interest in being released after they've served their term of revocation in a determinate sentencing state where the statute says that the DOC must specify the term of revocation. And so that once the individual has served that term and becomes eligible for release, they're simply not released. Is there a liberty interest there to be released at that time is the DOC violating that liberty interest? And what is the standard of review, whether that is uh, strict scrutiny or rational basis? Counsel, let me ask you the question I asked opposing counsel about these review hearings and whether or not that issue is properly before us or the content of those uh, review hearings. Um, if you could address that. It is properly before us. Uh, that was an objection that was made at every one of the review hearings. It was an argument raised in the uh, exhaustion of the administrative remedies and the administrative appeal. It was argued to the district court and again to the court of appeals. Uh, it's been raised in every case, uh, including the other two that are stayed before this court. Um, review hearings are not allowed. Also an issue, it's also an issue in Ford. Yes. Uh, and, and Mr. Ford's case was perhaps even more egregious because he was uh, on his supervised release date, was brought straight to county jail and revoked there for failing to have an approved residence in his county of commitment because, like Mr. Leno, he could only find housing in a CCA county. And for that, I think that issue also raises the question about that this court is grappling with about the scope of the record. And if there is any question about whether or not uh, this is a question of statewide significance or whether or not additional information is necessary, I would ask this court to lift the stay, and particularly in Ford, but also in Mr. Young's case, and order briefing in both of those cases. There are substantial evidentiary issues that were discussed in Ford, and I think in particular, the one that might be of most interest to this court is uh, the questions that you've been asking about, Justice Hudson, about the existence of any sort of agreement with Hennepin County. There's kind of a cold fury in the district court's order in the Ford case, and I think that stems from the fact that the DOC attorney 
uh, made a representation to the court that uh, there was no sort of agreement like to that extent, that Mr. Ford had been released to Hennepin County and he would stay there. And only when the DOC witnesses were brought under oath did they admit that there was the secret agreement to Mr. Ford about the duration of his supervision. Uh, and that is, of course, important to the question about whether or not the DOC has the authority to hold review hearings to incarcerate people past their release dates in order to work out these sorts of agreements with CCA counties when the DOC doesn't have the right to hold review hearings and does have the obligation to supervise during the conditional and supervised release terms. So if there's any evidentiary question, rather than deciding a mootness issue or deciding on a limited record, we would ask the court to order additional briefing in those two cases. This is not a case about an individual who couldn't find housing. This is not a case about an individual that didn't have a place to go or that was a risk to the public or didn't do the legwork to find a place to go. He was like everybody else that we've been representing in these hearings that had a place to go in a CCA county in a legislative scheme in which individuals have the right to be released after serving their term of revocation and that have the right, the presumption a liberty interest to live in the community and reintegrate during their supervised and conditional release terms. The DOC isn't arguing here that Mr. Leno didn't have a place to go at any of those times because this, the hearing officers in all of those hearings and the executive director for the, for the hearings and release unit agreed he had suitable housing. He just didn't have approved housing because the DOC wouldn't approve it and wouldn't let him out. And that raises statutory rulemaking and constitutional questions about whether the DOC can do this. We ask the court to reach the merits of all of these issues, to find that the DOC cannot do what it is doing, that it must follow the law. It must release individuals who have served their term of revocation. And if it wants to hold them past that date via a review hearing process, it must go through the proper rulemaking channels to adopt such a process. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.